hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's uh, a sad announcement. Uh, many of you know this, that um, my father, Thomas Leslie McCullough, passed away in his sleep on September 27th of 2022. Uh, he was just short of his 81st birthday on October 4th of 2022. Uh, he lived a full life. He died uh, a peaceful death and God blessed him uh, throughout the course of his life. And in his memory, I have this poem titled Benacht, and this is by uh, the late Irish poet John O'Donohue. My father was 100% Irish and was very proud of his heritage. Let's listen to John O'Donohue. This is a poem I wrote several years ago, and it's called Bannacht, which is the Gaelic word for blessing. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the grey window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colours, indigo, red, green and azure blue come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the corrock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours, may the clarity of light be yours, may the fluency of the ocean be yours, may the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. That was Benacht by John O'Donohue in memoriam of Thomas L. McCullough. We have a great show for you this week and have a very long format interview with a dynamic uh, leader in integrative medicine and, and probably the world's expert on the modern clinical evidence for vaccination, uh, with uh, starting with the entire vaccine schedule, and that is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, uh, and she took it away. Uh, she has an absolute presence in this area and uh, is a leader, and I really respect her judgment for uh, taking on uh, the courage to evaluate the risks and the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination as various pathogenic threats have changed over time and our ability to treat them have changed over time. So you'll really welcome Dr. Tenpenny on the backside of the McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. You know, I wanna tell you about Cofix RX and a recent experience I had at my house. Cofix RX is Povidone Iodine Nasal Spray 
in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the pavidone iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. But, you know, the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses, as an example. Common bacteria, including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position. And there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period in the active treatment of a cold. And so the household experience was my wife got a cold and I could tell she was getting congested. She didn't feel well. I said, let's get Cofix RX into action. We got it out of our cabinet and she started using Cofix RX about three times a day uh, while awake. And the reason why I'm telling you this is that she got through the cold. She had cold symptoms. I think they were abbreviated and less severe than they could be. But importantly, no one else in the house got sick. Cofix RX, I believe, shortened the course of uh, illness for my wife and importantly did not spread it to me or other people in my household. So I have to tell you, we're on pins and needles when anybody gets sick in the house and Cofix RX is not far away. So go to cofixrx.com and in the promotional code, uh, put in out loud for a discount. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Now, I'm going to let Dr. Tenpenny introduce herself because she's become quite a presence in <clears throat> the entire field of integrative and holistic medicine, and uh, she's had such a broad impact, not only in uh, the Cleveland metro area across the state of Ohio, but really across the whole country and the world. Dr. Tenpenny, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. Well, why don't you, you introduce yourself to the McCullough Report audience? Yes, sure. Um, for people that don't know who I am or what I've been doing, um, I went to the University of Toledo in Ohio to undergrad. I went to Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine in Kirksville, Missouri. So yes, I'm an, an osteopathic physician. Um, I did my postgraduate internship and training in, D in the Detroit area. And then I went directly into emergency medicine. And then I grandfathered in to board certification in emergency medicine. I am also board certified in by the American Academy of um, Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine through the osteopathic profession. And I have a certificate of proficiency in integrative medicine um, to kind of round out that circuit. 
Um, I was the board, I was the director of a level two trauma center in Finley, Ohio for 12 years. Um, uh, I was the first DO on an all MD medical staff. I was one of only four women on a, on the medical staff. And when I became the director of the ER, I was 29 years old and the youngest person on the medical staff. So that was my first career in emergency medicine. I moved to Cleveland, Ohio in 1996, and I set up an integrative medicine practice here, for which I'm proud to say that people have come from all 50 states and at least 18 foreign countries to come to our center here in Cleveland, Ohio, to get well and to get off most of their pharmaceutical drugs. In 19, in, and then in September of 2000, I got a flyer in the mail that, land, that sat on my kitchen counter for weeks, and it was a, a to a to go to a conference by the National Vaccine Information Center meeting in Washington, D.C. in September of 2000. And that and I every time I tried to throw that flyer away, it kept somehow making its way back to my kitchen counter. And I said, well, there must be some important reason I'm supposed to go to this conference. I guess I'll just go. Well, the important reason was that I sat through four days of listening to vac parents of vaccine injured children, to medical doctors who treated vaccine injured children, to bench researchers, scientists, lawyers, and, and talk, they talked about all the problems with vaccines, which was just a complete enigma to me. I mean, you know, when I was in the ER, I gave out tetanus shots like they were some special kind of candy. You know, more the more the better, because, oh, my gosh, you know, for sure, people always die of tetanus as soon as they get it, which actually is not true at all. And I came home from that conference and I said, how in the world did I miss this? You know, I grew up in a chiropractic family. Um, I grew up on vitamins and chiropractic adjustments. I was not vaccinated at all as a child. I had measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox. I think I had pertussis a couple of times. And, and here I am, you know, at the time I was in my early fifties. And I said, how in the world, how in, or in the, actually in my forties said, how in the world did I miss this? So I thought I should take a, a little bit of a review. And I thought, well, where should I start? I guess I'll start with the CDC papers because they're supposed to be the experts on this. So I started with the general recommendations of vaccination, the 1998 version of that. And the CDC comes out with that about every two to three years. And it's been greatly updated since that time, because when I first read it, I thought this can't possibly be it. I mean, this cannot be what an entire industry is built on. It was written poorly. Every reference was the CDC. So the CDC referenced itself on every single reference. And I thought this, there's got to be more to it than this. So from there, from September of 2000 up until now, I've, I've, I've taken uh, an enormous amount of my time. In fact, I would venture to say it's well over 50,000 hours, and that is not an exaggeration, to take a deep dive into all the, all the vaccines in the childhood schedule, all of the individual ingredients, uh, the excipients, the adjuvants, all the problems with the, uh, with the childhood vaccination schedule, with the VAERS database. I mean, I've become pretty much the go-to person on problems associated with vaccines. Yes, across the country and pretty much around the world. I've spoken all, all across the world on this, not uh, both live and in podcasts. And my conclusion, after spending all that time I subscribed to the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal. I combed all the literature in JAMA, the New England Journal of Medicine, all the peer-reviewed literature. In fact, I have a collection of, of articles in the Tenpenny Research Library of links to abstracts and links to full text articles of more than 18,000 articles only from medical journals that show, that show that vaccines are not safe, never been proven to be safe. They are not effective in terms of keeping you from getting sick. 
They're really not necessary at all if you take care of your body and, and take care of your health. And they absolutely positively cause harm. And so after doing that, when COVID started to come on the scene in, in March of 2020, it was pretty much a natural extension for me to just go forward and say, okay, now what's in these crappy things that they're wanting to inject into people? And I've spent the last couple of years like you, Peter, doing an enormous amount of interviews. I mean, between March of 2020 and December of 21, I did well over 600 interviews. I've done probably another 100 more since then uh, to let people know what's coming through that needle in the COVID shots. So it was pretty easy for me to just go forward and analyze what's coming through the shots. And then I developed the 40 Mechanisms of Injury. There are two eBooks that are available on drtenpenny.com. The 40, 40, 40 Mechanisms of Injury of How the COVID Shots Can Make You Sick or Kill You. And I started, I did that in May and July of 21. And since that time, it's almost on a daily, weekly basis, more and more and more articles are being published that I had already talked about in May and July of 21. And more and more people are getting louder and thinking that all of a sudden at the end of 22, this information is suddenly becoming available when in fact it's been out there for more than a year. And so that's how I've, that's the background on how I became the uh, the go-to expert to talk about all of these things because I've put the lion's share of my life in the last 22 years into this. Well, let's, let's <clears throat> examine the the vaccine schedule. So I've seen a graphic uh, when I was born and when I was a newborn. Now I, I was just the opposite. My mom took me in, and and me and my brothers got all the vaccines. Um, but when I was born, the schedule had basically three vaccines on it, and uh, it, you know it it was relatively limited. I, I think it was uh, uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis was in one. Then it was um, the oral polio. I remember the the sugar cubes, and then um, I believe it was uh, measles, mumps, and rubella. That that was my my uh, trio. I'm nearly certain. But in that, obviously, there's multiple vaccines. If you count it up, it's probably like uh, eight, eight or so. Um, th there seems to be <clears throat> a a theme starting way 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 back with. Edward Jenner and, and, and you know, the, the advent of, of vaccination, there seems to be a theme that the vaccines must be viewed as safe and effective and never challenged. Do you get that sense from the very beginning? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, just to just to confirm what you said, that was accurate. Up until 1985, actually, Peter, up until 1985, there were only three shots on the schedule, DPT, diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis, MMR, measles, mumps and rubella, and oral polio vaccines that switched over to injectable only in 2000. So we used the oral polio vaccine from when it was first introduced in 1955. And then because the only people that were contracting paralysis anymore because the virus went away um, were people that were exposed to the live virus that was given in the oral polio vaccine, passed through the GI tract and went out into the stool. And then there were many cases that were reported of mothers that were that had recently been exposed to that. They're, they took their child in for the oral polio vaccine and then got exposed to the virus and then contracted a, a, a paralytic syndrome. And so in, in 2000, the U.S. switched over to the injectable only, the IPV, and that's what we've used in this country ever since. So those three shots were what were given to 
up through 1985. And so, I mean, that's that's quite a ways into, excuse me, pardon me so much, into the present tense. And what that and so a lot of people say, well, I don't remember getting that many shots when I was a kid, or I don't remember my kids getting that many shots. That's correct, up until 1985. And then in 1986, during that period of time, they were still using the whole cell pertussis vaccine. And the whole cell pertussis vaccine for more than 60 years, six zero, 60 years, there was an article published, several articles sometimes, every single year about the brain damage that was being caused by the whole cell pertussis vaccine. And the early, like 1983, 1984 in that time, the, the manufacturers that were making the whole cell pertussis vaccine were getting sued to kingdom come. I mean, the, they, the brain damage that was happening, the lawyers had gotten a hold of it, and they started really suing uh, for the damage being caused by these shots. And the, the manufacturers said, well, we know they're not safe. This is the best we can do. And, you know, vaccination is the cornerstone of our public health uh, policy and has been for generations. I mean, we must vaccinate. So they went to Reagan and they went to Congress and they, they stated their case and said, unless you give us liability protection for what we know are faulty products, unless you give us uh, liability protection for that, um, we're just going to drop. We're just going to stop. We're just not going to make any more. And so then, of course, the, the media machine got involved with that and said, oh, we can't have that. I mean, for, for heaven's sakes, children might get measles, which, of course, as a side note, they always tell parents, oh, if you get measles, you're going to die. Except in 1963, Peter, before they even came out with the measles vaccine, the death rate from measles was two in a million. The death rate from measles in 1963 or 1962, before they came out with the measles vaccine in 1963, was, was two in a million. So the death rate was negligible even before they came out with this vaccine many, many decades ago. So they won and they won. And they, so the pharmaceutical industry won. So Congress passed and Reagan signed into law the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program with the Childhood Compensation Act that gave the pharmaceutical industry complete liability protection for every single vaccine that went on to the pediatric schedule. Begin, that was beginning in 1986. And there's a really good movie that Andy Wakefield put together. It's called 1986 the act, T-H-E-A-C-T, 1986theact.com. And it's, an, it's a marvelous documentary. And it really is something, if, if people aren't familiar with it, that sh they should go out and find it and watch it. It's about a two-hour documentary that shows how the pharmaceutical industry co-opted Congress to get complete liability protection for every, for not only the, the, the three shots that were already on the schedule, but for every shot they put on the pediatric schedule going forward. In the documentary, it's, it's, it's a very well done documentary, Peter, because it's the, it's the story of a husband and wife that had waited a very long time. They had a hard time getting pregnant. They finally got pregnant. And the, and the, and the mother was like, well, what are we going to do about vaccines? And the dad was like, well, of course we're going to vaccinate our child. And she said, really? Maybe we should look into this. And then it's their story, their journey about how they found out that there were never any safety studies done on any of the vaccines, how that they found out that effective was a word co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry, that effective we as consumers and doctors think effective means prevents you from getting sick. But really, in, what it really means is it does what it's intended to do. 
meaning when you inject a foreign matter into a child, it develops an antibody. And as long as it develops an antibody, they say that the vaccine is effective, even though you can have very high antibody levels to any one of the of the pathogens that are injected and still contract that infection. So this effective, what we think means effective means when we say safe and effective, it's safe and it keeps you from getting sick. That's really in the, in the vaccine research, really not what it means at all. So, so let me just let me just <clears throat> stop you there. So I, I pulled up the schedule. I want to be make sure I'm on the record. I'm correct. So I was born in 1962. So it, it, that year, it was polio, the oral polio. It was smallpox. And I checked with my mom and actually my mom said I did get the smallpox vaccine. And then it was diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. It wasn't even uh, measles, mumps, and rubella then. That came in later on. That um, came in in about 65. Right. And, and, here, and the smallpox vaccine, we stopped giving it to the general population in 72. Right. Now, so let me ask you, of these illnesses, um, uh, you covered uh, measles. So measles is a skin rash. It had negligible uh, mortality. But there was a theme. The theme developed was to overstate the seriousness of the illness in order to prompt and justify vaccination. But aren't some of these illnesses really serious? Let's take polio. Uh, you know, I, I've seen patients in my practice, people I've known in life that have been paralyzed from polio. I've seen polio cardiomyopathy and the residual of it. Isn't polio a serious enough infection that we should promote vaccination for polio? No, because what we're doing again is playing to the lowest common denominator. How many of those cases have you actually seen, Peter? A handful? A couple yeah, dozen? And, and of course, yeah. it happened a long time ago as well. And it happened a long time ago. The, the polio vaccine came out in 1955. And the peak of the polio infection actually dropped off by 1957. And in the United States, we have had, there's been no wild polio viruses in the United States and the World Health Organization declared polio, polio, um, I'm sorry, declared the Western hemisphere polio free in 1991. But we still give children four doses of this shot to protect them against a virus that isn't even in the environment here. But let me, and, let and, me and, wait, and wait, there's one other thing about that is that polio Actually, 97%, and this is study, this is information that comes directly from the CDC. You get their pink book. Their pink book is all about all of the different shots and the childhood infections. The CDC's pink book actually says that 97% of people who were exposed to a polio virus, which is an enterovirus, back in the day when there was a lot of it around, more than 97% of people, it passed through as an asymptomatic infection. They had no symptoms whatsoever, and it went away. 2% of people, about 2% of people had what looked like either uh, stomach flu, maybe a little bit of food poisoning, it went away. Less than 1% had something that looked like a um, viral meningitis. And 0.02% of people who contracted a, a, a polio infection actually ended up with some form of paralysis. Most of that paralysis resolved within two years. So it, when you take those numbers and you really look at them, and those are numbers directly from the CDC's pink book that anybody can go and look up. When you play to that lowest common denominator, what you just said previously about overstating how the seriousness of an infection, 
you know, we're two generations away from that, Peter. And if you go out to a community talk and you say to the community, when I say the word polio, what is the first thing that pops into your head? Paralysis. Yeah. Kids in in braces, um, you know, FDR, um, you know, the um, uh, uh, iron lung, all of those different things. That was in the 1950s. Here we are, you know, 70 years later, and we still promote that visual, which is absolutely not even existing anymore. But, but let me ask you. So the polio epidemic started to go down before the vaccines could have even have an effect. It was actually an initial um, failed polio vaccine. The um, uh, uh, you, you know, there was a, a, a change, this so-called uh, cutter incident that, where there was, um, you know, withdrawal. And uh, so what explained the polio pandemic going down? Was it wastewater treatment and better hygiene or what, what was the explanation if it wasn't the vaccine? Well, that takes into the whole other consideration of what else was causing this paralysis, and there is a lot of evidence that points to what was ha actually happening was an exposure to DDT, to chemicals and pesticides. And there's all these pictures of when they would spray, because polio would be this big thing people were terrified of in the summer, and they didn't want people to go to swimming pools. And there's all kinds of pictures of going down the street and, 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 and spraying DDT everywhere. And there was these television commercials that said, you know, little sing-songy things, DDT, DDT, it's good for me, good for me. And so there is evidence that points to the fact that what was happening with the paralysis was really a chemical poisoning that they pointed to a virus and said, see, that polio virus was causing this. Jeez, jeez, I've never heard that before. Let's take smallpox. So I got smallpox. You know, isn't smallpox a, a bad illness? Wasn't that a good idea to get a smallpox vaccine? Well, smallpox actually was was is another one of those things. It's pretty interesting. I'm glad you're bringing these up because honestly, whenever people... Um, talk, are, are new to the topic and they really haven't taken a deep dive into this. Um, one of the, the, where it's always, always starts is what about polio and what about smallpox? And the smallpox infections were, uh, you know, when you look at the history of smallpox, it goes way back, way before Jenner. And when they first started, and actually it was a skin disease. And the reason that they wanted to have a, a, um, a vaccine to prevent it was that the skin, this virus had a predilection for the uh, sebum glands on the face. So when the very wealthy in the late 1700s and the early 1800s would contract this infection, it would scar their face. Mm. And it was thought of as a filth disease, F-I-L-T-H, a filth disease among the very poor. So if the wealthy got this, con contracted this infection, they were accused of cavorting with the very poor and hanging out. And so it was a filth disease that had to do with, with uh, cosmetics. And that's where a lot, where a lot of the, uh, the um, late Lady, uh, Lady Montague, who was the first person who who tried to do this in vaccination thing in the late 1700s, um, she she was in Turkey and she was a friend of somebody in England, and they tried to do this engrafting where they would take a little scab off of the um, off of the smallpox uh, on the face, and they would take a little bit of the scab and they would inject it between the webbing of the fingers to try to give people uh, some sort of a resistance to the uh, to the smallpox. In fact, you know, smallpox inoculation along using the scab. 
um, went all the way back into the like 500 AD that the Chinese used to take the scabs of people who had this infection and grind it into a powder and have them snuff it up their nose. Mm. And, and if people... And some people seem to get some sort of a protection from that. Some people got, you know, viral encephalitis and died. And so this is, it is a very, very long history about smallpox. And it wasn't until, you know, um, that when Jenner came out with the, with the smallpox vaccine in, in the early 1800s, it was always about medicine, power, and money. I mean, Jenner was given the doctors of the day in the early 1800s that looked at what Jenner was trying to do with taking these, these, the cowpox virus and scratching the underbelly of a cow taking the, the cowpox virus and wiping it underneath the, the belly of their cow, making it fester and be like pus. Then they would scrape off that pus and they would, in, and, and, and they would make uh, hash marks with non-sterile um, scalpel blades because they didn't have sterility things at that time into the mother's arm, scrape the pus off of the belly of a cow or off the bottom of a horse hoof, smear it on the mother's arm. And when it got all big and fustery, they would scrape that off and jab it into infants three months of age. Mm -hmm. That was what early smallpox inoculation looked like. They called it arm to arm inoculation. And so at the same, so many of the doctors at the age, in that era, when they would look at this, they said, I did that to my patients. They got sicker than a dog and they got smallpox. Anyway, this stuff doesn't work. And they tried to throw it out from the very beginning. But Parliament was very much in favor of this. And the doctors that were in Parliament said, this is the first procedure and the first thing that we can go and do and make money on. And Jenner was given uh, 10,000 um, British pounds in 1801 to develop this entire industry. Well, if you can imagine, I mean, 10,000 pounds today is a lot of money. It was the equivalent to a couple of million dollars back then to develop this entire okay. industry. And so wow. it was money, power, and politics. And at the same time, so fast forward to 1853, which was the first mandatory vaccination law that was passed in the UK. And at the same, in the same year, because they, the more that they vaccinated, the more they spread the infection, because this was a live virus that they were just spreading everywhere. And in 19, and so in 1853, they passed the first mandatory vaccination law. And in that very same year in 1853, was the first anti-vaccination program that was set up. It was called Our Babies Battle. And it was started by parents whose children had been maimed or died from gangrene from these horrible shots. So the anti-vaccination movement, mandatory vaccination, politics, money, government is in the actual DNA and fabric of the entire vaccination industry going forward. And in my opinion, it's why physicians can't get their head around the idea that this is not good because it was, it's the very, it's part of the very DNA of physicianhood that goes all the way back into the mid 1800s. It's been baked in. Now let's have the other ones, because I want to just make sure we cover this. Uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Let's take diphtheria in the modern day. Diphtheria in the modern day. Treatable illness? Yes, by antibiotics. Okay. And, less about- than, and there's less than... And there's less than four cases of diphtheria. Actually, it's a reportable disease. And there's less than four cases of reportable diphtheria in the United States per year. And yet we massively inject people with this diphtheria te- toxoid. Okay. How about tetanus? I... I, I step on a rusty nail, I go into the ER, it gets cleaned out, and they give me some antibiotics, and they give me a tetanus shot. Is that going to do anything for me? Probably not. 
Um, tetanus immune globulin, which they don't even have available in ERs anymore, was probably the best thing for very dirty wounds, particularly crush wounds or road rash or things like that. And you, back in the day when I was an ER doc, um, we had that available and you would take the tetanus immune globulin, which is for those that are listening, the actual, just the antibody that's already been made to the tetanus toxoid, and you would inject it right into the wound. So if there was, because tetanus is a is a toxoid related infection. It's like a little spore that the tetanus, the Clostridium tetani round, balls up and gets like a little spore, it goes into your a dirty, dirty wound. And it's not just off of a rusty nail. That's another thing that we've impregnated into people's brains. And then that spore when has an opportunity to germinate and unwind and produce something called titanospasmin. And titanospasmin is the, is the strongest neurotoxin known to man. It's stronger than botulism, botulism it's stronger than all of them. Um, so, tetan so tetanus toxoid, when you get a tetanus shot, is, is designed to create an antibody to go against that little spore, if that spore is there even at all. At, even at all. And the other thing I think people need to know about tetanus, you know, I, I've seen it. I'm sure you have too, Peter, people that would cut their finger washing dishes in warm, soapy water. And yet they would bolt out of their house to the ER and sit in an ER for four hours if necessary, just so they could get a tetanus shot. I mean, tetanus is a, another filth disease. It's a dirty disease. You need to clean it out. Um, the death rate from tetanus is negligible. I mean, the only, CDC stopped tracking it in, in long, like in the 80s because it was so negligible. Now, and the other thing me, about... Yeah, but now, thing while, about we're, while we're on the show, I do want to bring up my co-author of my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, John Leake, who's a historian. He has pointed out that when the tsunami hit uh, in, in East Asia, in Banda Aceh, all these people were cut and scraped by all this, you know, dirty corrugated material and nails and wood and, and, and that there were people in Banda Aceh who died of tetanus. And it's been claimed that, boy, if they had a broad-based tetanus immunization, it could have made a difference. Is there any truth to that? Have you heard that before? I haven't, but this is one of my problems with, with, um, that statement, broad-based tetanus vaccination. So we need to give a tetanus shot to multiple yeah. millions of people on the outside chance a couple hundred may have needed it. Yeah. And there would have been a tsunami. Uh, who would have guessed that? I mean, my point is this. Listen, we get a deep tissue wound infection. We get it cleaned out. Uh, uh, sometimes we get antibiotics. Sometimes it's not needed but it's a clinical call and it's a treated, treatable illness, right? It's a, it's a treatable illness. Now I want to move on uh, and, and fast forward. I'm looking right at the schedule. Someone had sent this to me, the vaccine schedule I'm talking about. And in 2019, and I'm counting uh, over 70 different administrations of vaccines. Now out of the 70, 18 of them are influenza. That is vaccinating children for influenza. Can you give some commentary there? Sure. We started to give, um, we started uh, giving children six months of age. We started getting them the influenza shot in about 2004. And quite frankly, I think that part of the impetus for giving, for putting that into the pediatric schedule was again, the 1986 Injury Compensation Act, because that influenza, the pharmaceutical industry is only protected if that shot is in the pediatric schedule. 
for example, there are there are big class action lawsuits going on right now over the shingles vaccine because of all the people that have gotten injured from this chick from the smallpox or I'm sorry, the shingles vaccine, which they cannot put into the pediatric schedule. So here we are with influenza shots all out there given to adults all the time. And they were starting to get lawsuits about people that got Guillain-Barre and various things from influenza shots. And so the pharmaceutical industry said, whoa, we need to button that one up. Let's roll that pediatric, that influenza vaccine into the pediatric schedule, which they did in about 2004. And all the multi-dose, uh, all the multi-dose flu shots still have mercury in them. And they've gone from trivalent shots to quadrivalent shots, which they pulled the quadrivalent shots off the market on and off multiple times because that fourth virus seems to be very inflammatory and causes a lot of reactions in a lot of different people. But they keep dinking around with the formula to get it right. So now we give we start with a, a flu shots in children. And if it's the first one they've ever had, you give them two. You give them one and then like, you know, six weeks later or so you give them a second one. And we know that the viruses morph and change every year. I mean, that's why we have to, we, we promote giving flu shots again every year uh, because the viruses that are in, contained inside of those flu shots morph pretty regularly. And does the flu shot, does it, I mean, is it substantially effective? Has it ever been shown that to be effective? It's a substantially ineffective. In fact, I looked at CD. One of the things that the, that the government is really good at is data entry. I mean, you can find tables for just about anything you want inside of our government databases. And the CDC every year tracks um, influenza illness. And how that works, Peter, is there's about 120 testing state stations across the country. So if you get what appears to be the flu, you know, deep body aches, fever, cough, you know, all those different things. If you go to one of those testing centers, you get a nasal swab and a throat swab, and they send it to the CDC to see to, for tracking. Uh, the CDC tests about 600,000 swabs per year. And then that first set of testing, when those swabs come in, the first thing that they do, they take the, 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 the Q-tips out and they test to see, is this a influenza virus or something else? You know, if that, so the first thing that they do is they test it. If it's an influenza virus, that goes over into another part of the lab where they subtype it to see if those influenza viruses out in circulation making people sick match those viruses that are in the flu shot. That's where that data comes from that we hear on the news. You know, this year, this, the flu shots are 34% effective or 27% effective. That's where those numbers come from, those initial swabs. Is it influenza causing illness or not? I looked at 19 years worth of data that they separate out in that first swath of influenza or not, it's only influenza causing illness on average about 14% of the time. 86% of the time, it's some other virus, some other thing, some other bacteria that's making people sick. So if the flu shot, and then you, you take that 14% of the time that it's making people sick out, then you subtype it and say, well, now it's only 25% effective. Well, then that means 25% of 14% is how much the flu shot is going to protect you, which is negligible. Well, let me just, uh, I always give our listeners that are used to this, um, uh, cite some evidence. So MMWR, March 11th, 2022, first author is Chung. The title of the paper is Interim Estimates of the 2021-2022 Seasonal Influenza Vaccine Effectiveness in the United States. Um the overall calculated vaccine uh, efficacy, as you 
uh, in line with your um, statements, uh, last year was 16%, Sherry, 16%. The 95% confidence interval spanned from minus 16% to 39%. So that means it's considered significant, statistically um, uh, no different than zero. It's no different than zero. Statistically insignificant, uh, no different than zero. So if it's no different than zero, why would anybody take a vaccine? And my understanding is from year to year, it's not much different. It it has very low vaccine efficacy. Yeah, I like I said, I looked at those those numbers over just just raw data over a 19 year period of time and put together a table that showed that, you know, 600,000 swabs tested, you know, of those 600,000 only on average over that 19 years 14% of them were influenza viruses, which means if that flu shot was going to protect you at all, it's going to work 14% of the time. And then if it doesn't match, if it doesn't match or it's a really poor match, it protects you even less. But yet we push, 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 push the flu shot. Like it's some miraculous thing that's going to keep you from getting sick. But but let's, let's stay on this for a second. I mean, I, I've been told as a general, as a general axiom, that a vaccine should have at least 50% vaccine efficacy to even be worth it, meaning it's got to give you at least a greater than 50% cho- uh, chance for some protection. Otherwise, if it's so low, in this case, is if it's no different than zero, and then if there's any side effect with the vaccine, since it's no different than zero on efficacy, any safety event, one safety event, would be one event too many. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, this is uh, this is uh, really a stunning revelation. So you and I come from two different places. You never took a single vaccine. I took all of the vaccines. Uh, in medical school, we were just taught to accept them as safe and effective, really with no challenge, no critical thinking, no critical review. I don't remember any type of critical review on this. And looking through some of the others, just to make sure we cover them, hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is an antigen-based vaccine. I remember I uh, you know, had needle stick injuries during residency. I worked in the cardiology cath lab, lots of exposure to blood and body fluids. I couldn't wait to get the hepatitis B vaccine. I, I thought, boy, if I got hepatitis B, I'd be in, in deep trouble. Um, I, it, my mind set, said, listen, if there was an HIV vaccine, I'd get it because I wouldn't want to get contract HIV and hepatitis C all the same. Um, and so I took the hepatitis B vaccine. I took the, the series of them. I think I checked my antibodies and it ran low and I got a booster. But now I see hepatitis B vaccine is given on the day of birth now, Sherry, the day of birth, not, not, not restricted to cardiologists or surgeons or drug abusers, or people with blood and body fluid exposure, but to children, actually an infant on the day of birth, what's going on here? Well, that started in 1991. You know, what I said when they when they passed the 1986 Injury Compensation Act, that gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with any vaccine going forward. In 1991, they developed this hepatitis B vaccine, and they decided to give it to children at birth. And when you read that paper, that original paper, Peter, that came out in 1991, it's an 18 page paper. The conclusion of that paper is that we should give this hepatitis B vaccine to children at birth because hepatitis B is endemic in Southeast Asia. 
at that point in time in 1991, there were 14, only 14,000 cases of hepatitis B in children between the ages of zero and 18. So if there's 4 million live births per year, four times 18 is, you know, out of 80 million children, there were 14,000 cases that had been reported, probably children of of mothers or parents of IV drug abusing, um, you know, or prostitutes or people where that, that virus was endemic in our population here in the U.S., and so we decided to start giving it at birth. Congress actually held a hearing about it and said, where's your data? Show us where you have done any testing on safety at all in this population in one day old babies. And they they said, well, hmm, we didn't test it on children. We on, And if it's, we only tested it on five and 10 year olds. And Congress gave them a, a an order to go back and say, take this off the market until you tested it for safety on infants, which they did not do. And if you look at the graph, the hockey stick graph that started, because at that point in time, there was a lot of aluminum in the hepatitis B, which we are, you know, we give vitamin K at birth, which some of those uh, brands of vitamin K have hundred micrograms of aluminum in them. And then you give 200 micrograms of aluminum in a hepatitis B at birth. Imagine what you're doing to the, the, ner the central nervous system, the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the undeveloped kidneys in infants that are hours old and you whap them with these, with that much aluminum, they never took it off the market. And when you go back and you find those old graphs, the autism graph started to hockey stick up. At one point in time, probably five years into this, they had a manufacturing issue. They took it off the market for a while while they were fixing the manufacturing issue. And you started to see that hockey stick, stick of, of autism start to drop off. I'm saying that a lot of what was happening, not only was the hepatitis B that was given at birth, but the total amount of aluminum that gets injected into children. I mean, today, um, children, if, if they're fully vaccinated from birth all the way up to 18 years of age, they get 72 or 73 shots, depending on how you count some of the dosages. They get 300 and over 300 antigens injected, over 500 micrograms of mercury, and about 12,000 micrograms of aluminum injected into their body that just doesn't go away. And the, and the lion's share of that happens up through about six years of age. So, you know, giving the hepatitis B at birth has, has never made sense. They actually even give it like if mothers go in in their prenatal care and they get tested for hepatitis B and it's negative, the doctors and the hospitals still insist that the mother must give their one day old infant a hepatitis B in order to discharge them from the hospital. In many incidents, I've heard hundreds of stories like that. So we're deep into uh, what is almost a historical frenzy over mass vaccination. Uh, none of what you've mentioned has been subject to a large prospective randomized trial of people getting the placebo injection versus the, the active vaccine injection. None of these have actually been proven in a randomized placebo controlled trial to prevent the occurrence of serious illness. Many of the illnesses are not serious. In fact, they're treatable if they occur. Many are very rare. Uh, so we're left with the lack of a compelling argument on efficacy. And as you've mentioned several times, concerns over safety. So the trace metals never sound good. So mercury in things, aluminum in things, never, never. There's never a circumstance where that would be allowable. Is it just that uh, the manufacturers uh, would have to come up with new techniques or more expensive techniques to get them free of these trace elements? Or what's going on there? 
Well, the idea that Mercury was, uh, you know, was first used in um, in shots back in the 1920s. I mean, they used that that was supposed to be an astringent, meaning that the mercury would be in the vial and it was mer supposed to keep the vials from being, you know, a multi-dose vial. So you're putting, you know, needles in and out. And if there was any sort of a contaminant of bacteria from doing that, the mercury was supposed to be like an astringent. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been proven unequivocally in many studies. It does none of that. But they never took the mercury out. Even in, even in 2004, when we had all of the, you know, the mercury mom big movement that was like, we got to get the mercury out because it's really what's killing our kids. And Congress told the pharmaceutical industry, you need to go back and reformulate all these shots and take the mercury out. They never told the pharmaceutical industry, you have to do a product recall and pull every single one of your shots off the market that has mercury in them until you reformulate it. They just continued to inject mercury into children for another four years until they reformulated those products and took most of the mercury out. Now, how and, about I mean, aluminum? How about aluminum? The aluminum is supposed to be in there as an adjuvant. The idea is, is that when you get a, a shot in your arm, the aluminum is supposed to hold that vaccine antigen in place in your arm long enough for the for the macrophages and the B cells to come by and look at that vaccine, at that antigen, at that pathogen, and to start to develop antibodies mm. for that. That's the theory of what that's supposed to do, even though it's never been proven. And we now know that it doesn't hold the antigen there at all. And so that's the reason why there's, and the aluminum is in, you know, when they took the mercury out, they doubled down on the amount of aluminum that they put in the shots. Yeah, you know, I- And I, and I, and I want to go back to what you said about the not having the double-blind placebo-controlled trial. We have petitioned the CDC for decades now, asking them for a full-out study, I mean, out of your, you know, 10, 12, $15 billion budget to please do a study that shows the health of fully vaccinated children versus the health of completely unvaccinated children. And they refuse to do it because they say that that would be um, experimenting on children unnecessarily because we are withholding a known treatment of value from those unvaccinated children and they might get sick and die. And we can't possibly have a large population of unvaccinated children to compare their health status mm -hmm. compared to the fully vaccinated that have asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, insulin dependent diabetes, cancer, and on and on and on. Or yeah, just, just anything that uh, could have been spurred. And we know, uh, for, let me give an example. Before COVID, I was uh, largely just working in the area of, of heart and kidney disease. And so I lived through this whole era of, of just a disastrous administration of aluminum to dialysis patients. And the aluminum encephalopathy, they received massive amounts of, of aluminum. I remember in the course of my career, gold, gold injections used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, you know, what we've learned over time is any installation of any metal in the human body is a bad thing. It is. It's just. It's just a bad thing. Even you know. Even the the uh, molybdenum that's in the uh, total joint replacements, if it's not you know kept uh, you know carefully and sealed in these joint replacements, is a problem. Any metal's a problem. There's even actually adverse data on the old forms of dental fillings. Yes. So, uh, you know, we're going to have to bring this to a close, but what I'm concluding, and again, this is wonderful because you came from uh, a, a family in an environment where no vaccinations were given uh, about, I think the total estimates in the United States is roughly two to 3% of people are in that category. I'm in the other 97% where we took them all, but unquestioningly, and then through medical school, in a sense, we're indoctrinated 
I'm starting to come to the conclusion that this is an entire house of cards. That this Absolutely. Is, this is a house of cards. It was built on a lot of incorrect assumptions. It never had randomized placebo-controlled uh, uh, data on efficacy uh, or, or safety. And now there is this accrual of events that ecologically look like they're related to the vaccines. You mentioned uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, but there's also asthma, autoimmune disorders, a whole variety of childhood disorders. You have the smoking gun, meaning these are given in the body. You can't take them out. You have the smoking gun that there's a trace contaminant, at least metal contaminant. That's real. So this is starting to build a compelling argument that the entire vaccine schedule, this is in trouble right now. And I saw some recent survey data that now a third of families, young parents are starting to question this. And what's really spurred it all has been the COVID-19 vaccine disaster. And that's a topic for a different day. Would you, would you agree with that or you know, have some final comments along those lines? Yeah, a couple things. I, I I totally agree with that. A couple things I want to mention. Um, my my parents were not like big anti-vaccine people. My dad was a chiropractor, and he got um, a lot of shots when he 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 served in the Korean War. And when he went into the war and got the shots that they were given at that time, he got so sick, like within an inch of his life, that he said, "I've never been that sick ever." So when he came back. Um, and in the chiropractic literature in the 1950s, I was born in 1958. And so the chiropractic literature in the 50s was showing all of these children that were contracting par paralytic illnesses from oral polio vaccines and, and all that during that time. And so he and my mom made the decision that they're like, we're not doing that. You know, my dad really believed in chiropractic and the health of the body. I grew up on Shackley vitamins. I mean, I, you know, he said, we just take care, we just eat well and take care of her. I mean, she'll be just fine. I mean, these, these infections were always like rite of passage illnesses, like nobody dies from this stuff. So that's how it was came to be that I wasn't vaccinated as a child was it wasn't that they were big campaigners. It was just my dad had gotten really sick and he said, I'm not doing that to my daughter. And, and so that's the one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing is that Again, I want to re-mention that the tenpennyresearchlibrary.com, tenpennyresearchlibrary.com, it's a, a collection that I have been putting together since 2003. It's sort of like a collection of articles and, and links to articles that are like, um, I build it for a time such as this, that these are the things that people need to go and look at. And it's a free collection. All you have to do is register with your name and an email address. There's no charge for it. And it's got a two-layer search. So you can you can look at, there, and it gives the instructions. So like you can look at chickenpox vaccine um, and how many times does a chickenpox vaccine cause autoimmune disease? And you can go in and take a deep dive and dig into that. There's nothing in there from the popular literature or blog or any of that stuff. It all comes from peer-reviewed medical literature. So it's sort of like, why is it that physicians don't know this? In fact, when I first started doing this and, and, and putting this information out, Peter, back in probably the beginning of 2001, I, my first thought was after I started digging through all this stuff was like, surely, surely, if physicians just saw this information, that was 20 years ago, if they just read the stuff in their own journals, they would they would start to question and go, wow, look at this. How could this possibly be? And I was kind of dumbfounded, and I still am to this day, that there's all this information 
that shows no safety studies, no efficacy, all the children that die or get maimed. I mean, all the different things that have happened and physicians just put on their blinders and do step to vaccinate, 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 vaccinate. It's been a real enigma to me. And I think that everything that you said about being a house of cards, it absolutely is. And all the evidence is out there. We don't have to do any more studies to bring down the house of cards. It's already been done. We just have to look at it. Sort of like with the COVID shots. It's all that stuff. I I started putting that out in May and July of 2021. All of those reasons that these shots can make you sick or kill you. And now every week, more and more studies come out and people are like, wow, look at that. Huh, that must be something new. No, we've known it for at least a year, over a year already. Well, it, it would be certainly reasonable and fine, given the rarity of these things, to retire the, these vaccines or many of the vaccines start to kind of de-escalate here. Um, you know, I think one of the first ones to go or, or really just, you know, be completely elective is this influenza vaccine. It just Absolutely. has no track record of doing anything and it is pushed. I just had my hospital send this really st- stern email about the forced influenza vaccine, um, you know, with, with, with efficacy. Our own CDC is telling us that's no different than zero. So this idea that everybody has to take an influenza vaccine, that's no different. It has zero benefit to me. So if I'm one of the rare cases where something goes wrong and we know the immune system in each person based on a whole confluence of factors, things can go wrong and they do go wrong. It's in the package insert of the flu vaccine. Then I've taken a chance that was for no benefit. I think these are the things that everyone needs to understand. It's taking a chance on something that could go bad for no benefit. And the no benefit is either the vaccines are not effective like influenza or that the disease is so sufficiently rare, we're not going to even come in, counter, in contact with it. Uh, yes, Dr. Tempany, just we have one minute left. Um, how do our uh, listeners follow you? Uh, just give us again the website, any other things you want us, uh, our listeners to know about. Yeah, uh, the, you know, my umbrella website, I have a lot of different websites, but a lot, the umbrella website is just drtenpenny.com, D-R, no period, T-E-N-P, like Peter, E-N-N-Y.com, drtenpenny.com. Um, all of the links are there to the vaccine research, to the Tenpenny Research Library, to our podcasts, um, to all the different things that we do. <laughs> We're very busy. There's lots of things that are going on. But most of those things you can find right at that site at, at drtenpenny.com. You can follow my Substacks. I, I do Eye on the Evidence. I, re- I release an article called Eye on the Evidence on Substack, which is Dr. Tenpenny substack.com that comes out every Saturday and I do a, a Christian based inspirational substack every Sunday which is 10 penny walk with God substack.com so those are the, the the big things that we do um, that are all available at drtenpenny.com wonderful we're gonna have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough report thank you so much for having me Peter my pleasure let's get real let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio this is the McCullough report 